Hello and welcome to JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. Uh, I'm Meera Chandan from the FX strategy team in London. And today I'm joined by my colleague Ben Shatil, also from FX strategy, but from Tokyo. Um, so on many metrics, it has been a historic week for FX markets. Uh, we've had a hawkish outcome from the FOMC. Uh, they revised up their policy rate forecast for the coming years uh, by 50 to 100 basis points. Um, they've also indicated in their forecast that they're willing to endure a larger cost to curb inflation. And you've seen pretty sizable increases in front-end U.S. rates and also um, commensurate with that, um, a stronger dollar as well. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, we also have the BOJ, which uh, which uh, delivered quite an interesting outcome. It kept its monetary policy unchanged. But, of course, then the Ministry of Finance stepped into the foray to intervene uh, in FX markets to prop up the yen half hour later. Um, and, and, you know, to top the week off, um, just in case we had uh, run out of important macro events, uh, today we're seeing massive, nearly unhinged uh, moves in UK markets uh, following uh, the fiscal announcement from the new government, uh, from uh, the new PM this morning. So uh, clearly lots to, um, lots to discuss here. Um, let's start with Japan, uh, because that is, uh, in fact, uh, the MOF for the first time uh, intervening uh, in FX uh, to, uh, to prop up the yen in 24 years. Uh, ben, what to you are the most striking things about the events this week? Thanks, Mira. Well, look, this was a week of surprises, as you say, and I think Japan didn't disappoint on, on that front. So what, what was interesting from the move in both the you know, reaction that we had from the BOJ and, and from the MOF? So I think the first point to make is that there had been a sense that this may be the first BOJ meeting this week where we started to get some hint of, you know, a, a, if not a rolling back of stimulus from the Bank of Japan, you know, some hint that we would be transitioning out of that easing kind of you know, mode at some point. And the bottom line is not only did we not get any signal, any change in the guidance from the BOJ, we saw Kuroda, the governor, once again, double down on his dovish message. So as you said, that, that was really why the yen sold off. The yen depreciated very rapidly um, on the back of that, you know, that press conference from Kuroda. Um, and I think what was you know, quite astonishing was that, as you said, only half an hour later, the Ministry of Finance then stepped in um, to intervene in the FX market and, and try and prop up the yen. So, look, I, I think we had been flagging the risk that intervention was a, was a possibility. Um, I think the timing of the move was, you know, was a surprise because, as as you know, you and I have both just made the point. The reason the yen was weakening was because of that fundamental um, view that the BOJ, you know, was still on this sort of dovish path. Um, but I think you know what that means is that the threat of intervention is is now live. Um, it, it is going to be a persistent threat, but I don't think that that threat in itself is going to fundamentally change the picture for the yen. Okay, so now if we look um, look forward, um, you know it's important to sort of reflect on what the historical experience with uh, MOF interventions have been. Um, can you just summarize for us? you know, what kind of uh, market reactions we've seen in the past uh, in response to these kind of interventions and have they been durable? Yeah, th thanks, Mira. I mean, that, that's a good question. It's an important question. I think the simple answer is no, intervention has not proven to be durable. And that's a lesson not just from Japan, but I'd say 
you know, broadly thinking about Asian central banks, emerging market central banks. So what, what has been the historical experience? Well, if we look at the 90s, where the, the BOJ was, I'd say, fairly active in terms of yen purchase interventions, so trying to prevent the yen from depreciating too rapidly. Um, typically, the reaction in markets tends to be the largest, the first time that we see intervention take place. And as time goes by, as the BOJ has, you know, persistently intervened, that reaction or that, um, if you like, um, you know, spillover into the market gets, gets lower and lower, gets smaller and smaller. So if I look at what happened in the late 90s, um, when, they, when the, the MOF intervened um, in December 97, the first day we had a fall of about six yen in dollar yen. But by the second or third days, th those falls had, you know, became much smaller. So I think the point to make here is we have had a fairly large move, almost five, six yen um, you know, on the day. But I think as time goes by, what's going to become quite clear is that the MOF is not going to be able to stop the yen from depreciating outright. So I think the takeaway here is that you know, we could see some slowing in the pace, of yen the pace of yen depreciation, particularly as the market kind of comes to terms with the idea that the MOF, the BOJ, is going to be in the market. But the kind of the fundamental drivers for dollar yen higher, the yen weaker, so widening interest rate differentials, uh, a wider trade deficit, retail yen outflows, so households changing their yen deposits to FX deposits, none of those factors are going away. Um, and I would say that intervention is not going to be able to reverse course. And the, the final point I'd make on that is what's been interesting in, in the yen's depreciation this year, so you've had, what, 20% fall in the yen versus the dollar, is just how limited foreign spec, you know, foreign, um, what we think of as fast money flows, how limited that participation has been. And so I don't think intervention is going to be able to fundamentally change the course for the yen. Okay, so that's, um, that's interesting. Now let's talk specific targets. Um, you know, where do you think fair value for dollar yen here is? And how far do you think um, that we can get to in the coming, uh, coming weeks without a change in um, BOJ policy? Yeah, so if we look at where dollar yen should be trading based on interest rate differentials, so you can either look at something like the terminal rate pricing, where the markets price the Fed in, over the next couple of years, you can look at real rate spreads. They, you know, on both of those metrics, um, you should be looking at a fair value of around 146, 147, if not higher. Um, so the fact that we're now in the, you know, the, the low 140s implies that actually dollar yen is, is trading too low relative to that interest rate spread. Um, so what does that mean for our targets? Well, we think eventually dollar yen is going to trade back up to fair value. So that would imply, as I say, the mid to the high 140s. But I think as time goes by, um, to the extent that there's still, you know, fuel left in the, in the in, in, you know, fuel left for the dollar to the extent that yields, dollar yields, US yields have further to run. And as you say, we don't get any movement on YCC. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see the pair head, head over to the sort of the 150 kind of handle. So look, I mean, we are still um, in the camp that sees further yen weakness. We think it still looks attractive to be buying dollar yen on dips. Um, and I guess the, you know, the, the final thing I'd say is that um, even though we've already got into the 140s and, and those were, you know, that sort of level was seen by some in the market as a line in the sand that, you know, the, the rationale is that's why MOF intervened. I don't think that's the case. If you look at what the MOF has been saying to the market, they're worried not about levels, but about the speed of the move. 
So as long as the moves and you know moves in the yen are fairly orderly from this point, I think there's no reason why we can't take out fresh, you know, fresh high levels on the pair. So Mira, let me turn it back to you, and perhaps we can sort of shift gears and, and turn away from Japan for you know for, for the last couple of minutes. As you know, you said right at the beginning, we've had a lot of central banks moving this week. Um, some surprises, some sort of you know uh, some outcomes as expected. So what? is your kind of takeaway from the central bank meetings that we've had this week and um, if you put these you know different meetings together what does the sum of that you know the information we've had this week mean for the dollar where do we go from here sure uh sure ben we've had a lot of information um to digest this week uh for sure and in fact it was a 24-hour flurry of uh, central bank meetings uh but i think um Important to keep in mind that not all of them have uh, have really been transformative for um, the currencies that are related to those central banks. I'd say um, the most durable um, sort of shelf life of any central bank meeting was probably the Fed, um, given its willingness to sacrifice growth and employment in order to curb inflation. And I think that that was sort of the main surprise and the most interesting thing in um, the FOMC outcome. Uh, this week. Uh, if you take a look at the unemployment rate uh, projections, for example, they're now looking for uh, nearly a percentage point, uh, just under a percentage point increase in the unemployment rate from its staff, uh, from its trough of three and a half percent. They're looking for that to go to 4.4 percent next year. And um, the reason that's interesting is because um, that has not happened uh, historically in the US. That kind of increase in the unemployment rate hasn't happened outside of a recession. So clearly this is becoming a tighter and a tighter balancing act for them, but they are also increasingly willing to pay a greater cost to get inflation under control. Uh, US real yields have gone up as a result of this, but you know we've been sort of pointing out the upside risks uh, to US real yields in the context of where they've been historically. And just think that this is uh, providing, um, you know, this repricing and uh, this Fed rethink should end up uh, being a source, um, a substantial support, a source of support for the dollar, uh, particularly versus, um, you know, on a broad basis, actually, not just versus high beta currencies, but across the board. Um, so when we think about when we think about the dollar, obviously we think about what the U.S. side of the equation is doing, um, and that I think the Fed pretty much cemented with its outcome. Um, and then you think about what's going on in the rest of the world, and, and frankly, you know, the rest of the world story stays pretty weak. I mean, we were looking at the flash PMIs uh, today from Europe and UK in order to get a better sense of how growth momentum is evolving outside of the U.S. and um, uh, you know, UK um, data disappointed relative to expectations, so clearly not, not a great outcome. In Europe, I would say the composites were mostly in line with consensus expectations. Um, that, that may sound like, um, uh, you know, a bit of a positive, but really it wasn't because we're stable at sub-50 levels on the PMI, which is clearly contractionary uh, for the region. And at the same time, you've got some leading indicators still indicating some downside risk to European growth. So I would say the divergent stories between the US and the rest of the world are still very much in play thanks to the Fed and what's going on with growth outside the US. And for that reason, continue to stick with the long dollar stance here. Now, clearly the BOJ and the Fed were not the only meetings. And I think uh, if you look at some of the other meetings, I would say the S&B and the BOE were interesting to me. Uh, the BOE, because they under-delivered yesterday, uh, they delivered only 50 basis points. Uh, I guess there were some issues around, you know, they didn't really have the fiscal 
specific, uh, you know, the fiscal stimulus plans uh, officially in place, uh, which prevented them from going at a much quicker pace. Uh, but certainly that that was disappointing for, for Sterling investors. And um, I think is uh, part of the reason what, why Sterling is doing what it's doing today. Um, and then finally, I would say the S&B was interesting because uh, Yorosphus did jerk higher after that meeting because there was, um, I think, a general perception that the the central bank there, the S&B wasn't as hawkish as they could have been. Uh, they hiked 75 basis points. Markets were, you know, pricing in some odds of 100. Uh, but um, we, we think that, that that interpretation is overblown. And actually, we think the inflation pressure, pressures in Switzerland uh, keeps the S&B hawkish. And I think they're going to stay open-minded and sort of wanting more currency strength here. So Swiss longs continue uh, to be a a core view as far as we are concerned. Uh, so long, uh, you know, so bullish on the dollar and I would say uh, bullish on uh, Swiss uh, with this, you know, with both the central bank meetings in hand. So Mira, let, let, let's end closer to home and, and let me pick up on the point you made about Sterling and, and the Bank of England. If I look at UK markets today, we're having some pretty wild moves. Uh, what, you know, what, what is the read through for, for Sterling from here on? What, you know, what is our view on the pound going forward? Yeah, wild moves, a uh, bit of an understatement. I mean, we've had get yields um, rise by as much as 35 to 45 basis points higher uh, on the day at the time of this recording. We've got, and that's in the two to five year part of the curve, we've got 10 year yields, 25 basis points higher. And I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at sterling right now, and it seems to be sort of the worst tracking, uh, the worst uh, performing currency globally today. Um, at heart of this issue is basically the large unfunded stimulus from the trust government. Um, you know, the official details uh, have been announced this morning. And I'd say that, you know, the, what we've been pointing out on Sterling is that, that this issue is really centered, um, you know, not so much on purely the fiscal aspect of this, um, of this plan, uh, which, uh, you know, there's an acknowledgement here uh, from us that UK's fiscal position is actually in decent shape compared to um, several counterparts in G10. But it's really the issue of uh, the twin deficits, the fact that it's starting from an external uh, balance deficit, um, a current account deficit that's already pretty large, 4% of GDP on, a, on an annual one-year rolling basis. If you look at the first quarter, that had actually already increased to 8% of GDP. That was the largest on record. So if you say you know, you have a, say, let's call it a 6% current account deficit projected for the year uh, in combination with a fiscal deficit of 6 to 8%. You're basically talking about twin deficits in the order of 10, 12%, if not higher for the year. And, um, you know, there are two issues with that. I mean, first is that um, that magnitude of twin deficit would put UK as among the worst ranked economies on those metrics in the last two decade history. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's notable. Um, and the second one is that um, for Sterling to not fall out of bed here, the UK either needs higher growth or they need substantially higher interest rates to motivate the capital inflows. And clearly the PMI numbers from today and the BOE, uh, you know, 50 basis point high from yesterday is really not helping in that regard. And I think it's not providing the catalyst we need for sterling stability. So our core view is um, to be bearish on sterling. You know, we're looking for underperformance versus stress in the dollar. Um, that continues um, That continues to be the case after the under delivery from BOE yesterday and, um, and uh, the softer growth data. And in terms of targets, I would say that, uh, you know, we had uh, been highlighting for cable a target of 110. But clearly, the downside, um, our risk bias around that was clearly to the downside. So do look 
for um, for uh, for the weakness even even from current levels. So how much further could sterling weaken by? Look at a minimum, um, if we don't get a BOE reaction uh, pretty soon, and uh, I. I think uh, it's it's fair to say that uh, the trade weighted index, the broad index for K, uh, for sterling, uh, could retest the lows uh, post uh, the Brexit vote. Uh, that's call it another five six percent lower from here. And uh, if we get to that without much of a policy response, uh, I think cable could very much uh, be testing uh, either one of five or uh, sub one of five levels. So um, stay tuned for that. I think um, I think the target for for cable um, and for sterling overall is going to be uh, a floating one at this point, given how quickly things are moving. Uh, but our core position continues to uh, be bearish on sterling versus the U.S. dollar and Swiss. So uh, we'll stop there. That's obviously uh, quite a bit to digest in FX markets. But as um, I did highlight at the start of the podcast, this has been a historical week and there was a lot to unpack. Um, and hopefully you'll find this discussion useful. Uh, if you need more information, please visit jpmorganmarkets.com for our research reports. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on September 23rd, 2022.